You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Anthony McGill and Restless Prod, welcome to Token Theater Friends. I'm so excited to be talking to you today. So the two of you are incredible musicians, but in addition to that, you also run uh, the music advancement program at Juilliard. So I want us to get started uh, there. Like, what is the program? Who gets to be a part of it? And why did you want to be a part of it yourselves? Yeah, well, the Music Advancement Program, or um, MAP, um, at Juilliard was founded 30 years ago uh, when uh, the president of Juilliard at the time, Joseph Polisi, um, decided um, New York needed help. You know, New York and the surrounding areas, the music programs and arts programs in the city were being cut like they were doing, being cut all around the country. Um, and he founded, um, you know, this program, started this program to try to help beginning music students, uh, students learn how to um, play instruments, to play classical music, uh, to diversify and give people the opportunity to, um, to play music. Um, so that's kind of how it all started. Um, personally, my personal journey with wanting to help um, the program um, came because I, I was artistic director, I was named artistic, um, artistic advisor. Sorry, let me let me edit that since I'm fumbling a little bit. <laughs> My personal journey with um, uh, relationship with the program was when I was named artistic advisor um, a few years ago um, and then became artistic director of the program. And it's similar to a program I started off in Chicago. Um, so the mission is very important to me to kind of help young kids um, change their lives through music education and through getting the best kind of music education. I, I would add, you know, I'm Dean of the Preparatory Division. And so under that umbrella is both the Juilliard Pre-College and the Music Advancement Program. So it's both of Juilliard's programs that are specifically serving students who are between the ages of 8 and 18. And our programs run on Saturdays. So students are in the building from 8.30 in the morning until, for example, this Saturday, maybe until 9 p.m. when their concert ends. On an average Saturday, they might be there from 8.30 to 5 or 6 p.m. So it's a very intense program. The music advancement program, we currently serve about 70 students and we we intentionally serve students who are historically underrepresented, underserved in classical music. So it's a very, very diverse demographic in our student body. And I got involved for the, with the program for the first time back in 2008. In my other life outside of Juilliard, I'm a trombonist in Metropolitan Opera, but I started teaching in the program in 2008 as a faculty member. and. Teaching has just always been a part 
of my story. It's always been something that's really important to me. In fact, I joke with people that even though I'm a dean at the Juilliard School, I'm the only person in my immediate family that doesn't have a degree in education. <laughs> so so uh, uh, just love working with young people and helping them see the path forward and help them understand what's possible for them to achieve. And that's what we, that's what we do every Saturday. That sounds like fun. It's probably like more fun than cartoons many uh, many Saturdays. So the two of you, yeah, like I saw that when I was doing research on you and when I was reading interviews uh, that you've done, it's that, you know, the two of you became educators almost, as, you know, like your careers as educators are almost parallel to your careers as performers. So I wonder who were those people that inspired you um, to want to become educators yourselves? Or did you become educators precisely because no one was inspiring you? Well, you know, it's funny, um, and Weston can speak to this too right after me, but we both come from a family of educators, um, different families <laughs> of, <laughs> of educators. Um, my mom and dad were art teachers in the Chicago public school system um, and many years ago and when they first met and continue to, to teach art in the schools. Uh, my dad went into the fire department um, after that, but they were both artists and educators and they really wanted a household with, along with my brother, Damari, who's a flute player, a household where, you know, education was like probably the most important thing that they believed in to, to, ch to change our lives, but to also, they believed in changing other, other people's lives, you know? So that's what they did. That's what they believed in is to use art to kind of change the world. And so they did it within our house with my brother and I um, and with me. And so that the concept of education being maybe one of the most powerful things in the world um, for humanity is something that I grew up with. Um, so, and I think Weston, you can tell the story about your, your mom and, and everything. Yeah, my, my dad has a degree in elementary education, even though I never knew him as a teacher because he works in the business world now. But I was, I used to accompany my mom to University of Houston when she was getting her master's degree in education. I would sit outside the classroom a lot of times while she was in there going to class. And I got to see her trajectory from being a teacher for several years to be becoming an assistant principal to becoming a principal. And that was the idea of helping other people and teaching and specifically working with young people was just always, it was always part of the sauce, you know? That's just, it just is what it is. And actually, I kind of became a teacher when I was in high school. It's kind of organically, we would take these all region, all state auditions in Texas. And part of that process is you would play your audition in front of all the other students in the region who were also competing. And I was pretty successful at those auditions and we'd be waiting on results and some of the other kids who were in high school, say I was a junior or senior in high school, some of the kids who were ninth or 10th grade from a competing school would come up and say, hey, I really enjoyed listening to your audition. Could you teach me a lesson? And that was kind of my first, um, my first job. You know, some, some kids work at the fast food restaurant or wherever. My first job was I'd get in my little car and I'd drive across town and charge someone 20 bucks to teach them a trombone lesson. I, I, I kind of shiver to think about how many other people I screwed up because when you're 16, 17 years old, you don't really know anything about pedagogy. You just think you know something. But that was kind of the thing that got me in the frame of, of teaching and want to help people, you know? So I've, I was actually teaching before I even had a trombone teacher because I didn't start taking private trombone lessons till after high school. So I'd already taught trombone lessons before I got trombone lessons. And then by the time I started taking trombone lessons, 
I didn't really have enough income to to pay for them on a regular basis, but I had a teacher who told me, as long as you show up and you take this really, really seriously, I'll teach you for free. And I carried that with me. So, you know, I guess I'm saying this publicly and I probably shouldn't, but you know, I've taught a lot of free lessons in my life to students who I knew were really hard workers. They really want to achieve something. They might not have the money to do it. And that's a lot of, that's a lot of what the music advancement program is built around is providing access and opportunity to students who otherwise might not have it and putting them in contact with first rate musicians and teachers so they can get this world class experience at Juilliard, whether or not they have the the resources, you know, the personal resources to to afford that. Yeah, that's I think that is really, really important. I mean, I grew up on the south side of Chicago and so my first teacher used to come to the house he was a jazz saxophone player and we used to charge $10 for a lesson in the living room, but he was sleepy after gigs. So I, I actually, we found another teacher very quickly. Um, he was great. He was actually a really great player. As I discovered, he's still gigging in, in the Chicago area and performing, but um, yeah, without people that basically um, hooked me up, you know, in Chicago with lessons, you know, people were charging a hundred dollars an hour back then. But, you know, the principal clarinetist of the of the Chicago Symphony would charge me 30 bucks, you know, and my parents $30 and, and the school I went to was tuition free. And that uh, enabled uh, me to get clarinet lessons, you know, downtown, um, you know, from a place where I wouldn't have gotten kind of that kind of education before. So um, without that, I wouldn't I wouldn't be here. So I think there's some a reason why Weston and I really believe in the work that this program does, because we, we know how much of a difference it can make. That's really beautiful. What would you say is your absolute favorite thing to teach? I, I mean, I'll just go, I, you know, I think besides the, the musical components of clarinet playing, it really is um, the skills for for success, you know, in in life, and whether it's success success in life or success in like how to practice a scale properly, how to achieve success at, on a piece you're working on, it's all connected. And trying to help a student figure out the best way forward to like set a goal to learn how to to set a goal for success, and and working on that. Not that that's always going to work out 100. percent uh, perfectly every time, but talk, discussing that, having those conversations with my students is probably the most important thing. Is like how how not to give up, you know, when things get hard. I would say I, I love teaching private lessons, obviously, but looking back at my teaching experience, one of the things I've enjoyed teaching the most is pedagogy. Teaching, you know, classroom, like brass pedagogy, for example, teaching other students how to teach because it's such a full circle moment. You learn a lot about yourself. You're like, you have to re-examine how efficient am I with my words and what things actually translate and help people. But it's also awesome watching students try to teach because they start to recognize that teaching is a, is a real discipline and it's not easy. And when you put a student up there and you say, okay, how about you take over the classroom for the next 15 minutes and let's see how you do when you teach someone else. And so many of them come back and they go, 
oh man, I'm a bad student. <laughs> you know, they go like, oh goodness, this is really, really hard. No wonder you get frustrated with me sometimes or this thing doesn't work or whatever. I, I do have to be very thoughtful about what I say because every word that I, that I choose makes a huge difference to this person and the way they respond to me. And so those students learn a lot about themselves and their own playing because they have to figure out how to articulate their own their own musical values in a way that helps them with their own playing. But then it also changes the way that they think about taking a lesson because they go into their lesson and I think the respect that they have for their teachers, once they've seen how difficult it is to do that job, they think to themselves a little bit, I really should not come to a lesson unprepared because that's really unfair or that person told me that I'm not responding and I know what that's like because I've been on the other side a little bit. So the opportunities I've had to teach pedagogy I found to be really enjoyable, just fun. And I'm sure you also get to learn from your students. So what would you say is like your favorite thing that you've learned from, from, from your students? Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> that is actually probably, that's a really important thing. The reason people are always like, why do you teach so much? Why do you, why do you, you know, teach at two different schools, Juilliard and Curtis, and like, why do you do this in addition to your performing career? And I think probably the most important reason is that I'm I'm learning in the lesson. So every word that um, that comes out of my mouth, um, and that we're on the path to discovery with that student, is um, I'm getting it back. I'm listening to it. We are discussing it. So I'm practicing. I'm learning. You know, um, while teaching. And so when I say something and I'm experimenting, for instance, sometimes you have to experiment with what shapes work with the with the clarinet in your mouth, like how, how these the different things, techniques, you try the different techniques, you see what works. And then with, with that experimentation, then I know this will work the best for me when I go back and practice as well, because I have the same problems that the students have most of the time or have had them. And so when I figure out when I figure out something and it works really, really well with like almost every student, I know it's a really good tip that we have discovered while I'm teaching, you know, because it, the discovery just doesn't go one way. Like, OK, I'm going to tell you what to do and it's going to work. Sometimes that discovery takes a little while and then it's like, oh, wait a second. You know, no one ever told me this in this way as well. So I'm going to use it in my own playing. I'm going to use it in that particular piece um, the next time I play it. And that's that's pretty cool. I think it's 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 hard to boil it down to, to one favorite thing or one one best thing. There's, there's so many. I, I like the idea of psychological diversity and just thinking about our students that way. And it's kind of fascinating to think this thing works for this student totally doesn't work for the other. This is what gets engagement or gets results here, but doesn't get results there. And it, to Anthony's point, it forces you to clarify some things for yourself because there are certain things that we've been doing for so long as high level professional performers that you haven't had to think about in a while. And then you have to go back and reverse engineer things. And it actually makes you more consistent because now you have a deeper understanding of what you're doing. You know, I, I remember teaching real beginners how to just put the instrument together which at a certain point is kind of like tying your shoelaces. You know, when you're 40 years old, you don't actually think about the process of tying your shoelaces anymore. You just tie your shoelaces. 
But if you had to go back and teach someone how to do it, you have to wait a second. Okay, hold on. Now, which which lace do I grab first? And and you just have a deeper understanding of it. And we do that every week to some degree, which is, which is great. The other part of it is there's a certain there's a certain element that's kind of selfish, or it's selfless. I'm not even sure where it falls in. But basically, the idea is that the amount of joy and happiness that I can get out of watching one of my students be successful far outweighs the enjoyment that I can get from myself being successful. So when I work with a student and they get into their dream school or they play a great recital or whatever it happens, they win a scholarship or they get some great experience and they're there and they're telling us about it and their their parents are excited about it, That's that just brings me a certain level of enthusiasm and joy and joy that can't be recreated some other way and I, I, I kind of I thrive on that a little bit and so that, that's why I, I framed it as maybe it's selfish because that makes me feel really good you know on the other hand maybe it's selfless because you're giving to someone else but either way it's a it's something that that I love now I want to talk about the clarinet and the trombone how did you discover them or was that a case of the clarinet and the trombone finding you? Was it fate in a way? Sure, I'll, I'll go ahead. Like I mentioned earlier, I grew up in Texas, which part of growing up in Texas means high school football. That it's it's unavoidable. All the um, all the stereotypes and TV shows and movies and stuff like that are they're based on they're based on those stereotypes because that that culture does exist, and so. Every Friday and Saturday night from the time I was a little kid, you know, four or five years old, my parents and I, we would go to high school football games and we would sit in the stands next to the band. We'd stay around during halftime to watch the halftime shows. We loved the, the charismatic bands that would, that would dance and, and play soul music. I remember my dad went to Texas Southern University, which is known for their marching band, which is affectionately known as the Ocean of Soul. Uh, you know, with the the drum majors that that you know that have the it's it's awesome. It's it's just sheer entertainment. So, from the time I was a kid, I had this association with the band is fun. That's a cool thing to do. And my dad told me that he had played trombone when he was in junior high and high school. It was a cool instrument. He ended up quitting because he wanted to focus on basketball. When I got to high school, I played basketball also, and I quit basketball to focus on music. So it was a little opposite. But um, when the opportunity came to join the band, it was pretty clear that's something I wanted to do. And my dad told me that if I chose the trombone, he could teach me how to play the scale, which tells you a little bit about how much, how far his advancement in music went. That he thought he thought there was one scale, which was the B flat major scale. But that was enough for me to think. Oh, let's do that. This is cool. My dad did it. I go to see band all the time. I'll get a little leg up on the other kids because my dad can teach me one or two things here before the first day of school. Let's go with it. And that's that's kind of how it happened. Yeah, and uh, my you know my brother started playing flute when I was when I was pretty young. When I was like three or four years old, he started playing a flute. There was a flute in the closet that my mom. Uh, bought my dad back in the 60s when they were just like they would get together and party and jam with bongos and instruments and singing and dancing and that flute was in the closet collecting dust and so he picked that up and discovered and like kind of started playing the flute like that and and then when it was my turn to play an instrument I, I wanted to I want I think I wanted to play flute because my brother played it that wasn't allowed <laughs> my mom was like you're not playing the same instrument so um I wanted to play saxophone because we used to listen to a lot of um, 
a lot of smooth jazz in the house. So it was like this station 95.5 WNUA in Chicago. And, and they would play like Kenny G and some of these other people just like, you know, like smooth jazz, just make, I forget some of the other artists, you know, not just Kenny, but you know, some other people. So I want, so I had that in my ear, a saxophone, it was in the ear. So I picked up this saxophone, this alto sax, and this thing was as big as I was, right? <laughs> Cause I'm short, I was short as a little nine-year-old. And um, the teacher, like the band teacher at the school, they had just started a band. It was like, basically it wasn't a real band. It was like six or seven kids, you know, <laughs> in fourth grade. And uh, um, I picked up the clarinet and I was like, okay, I can hold this one at least, you know? So that's, <laughs> that's how I started playing clarinet. <laughs> I wonder if like you got together with your friends and jammed to pop music as well, try to, you know, play uh, whatever was on the radio that was not soft uh, jazz or classical music. Yeah, I think when we were younger, we tried to do some of that. I know my brother when he was young and we were, you know, maybe it was when I was playing or maybe it was definitely when he was playing, he used to like, um, you know, like try to rap and stuff. And so I don't know if we ever he ever got the flute involved in some of those tapes, but he used to try to make, you know, some of those older albums, they used to have like the skits before like the music, like some of the De La Soul albums and stuff like that. Like you would have like kind of like some talking and skits and we, he would try to do some of that. I wonder if he ever got the flute involved. I'm not sure, but there was definitely a time where, you know, um, recording the instrument and then recording talking and stuff. And I think he was in a, um, also in a jazz collective briefly when he, when we were growing up. So I remember going to some of those rehearsals early on before I even played an instrument. Um, but that's the thing that everyone always asks me to play stuff right now. And I'm like, oh yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to play in canto <laughs> just, just yet. <laughs> My daughter mainly, but I need to work on that. Now, it's funny because I don't do that anymore either, but there, there was a time when I did a little bit, you know, I, I think one of the reasons I have a, I like to believe I have a somewhat singing approach to the instrument is because I grew up listening to, to soul and R&B and eventually hip hop, but, you know, I was one of the, the little kids in the 80s uh, who basically had Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes and the Shy Lights and Barry White and the Supremes and the Jackson Five. All those lyrics were memorized. That that was that was the soundtrack of our road trips as children. <laughs> that, that is true. So I'm right there so, with you. <laughs> you know, even if you pull that stuff up now, you pull up an old school Marvin Gaye album or you know Teddy Pendergrass or something. It's like that's that's my stuff. You know, um, and so when I would go to the music store as a kid, you search for all these different books. You know the essential elements of how to play the trombone or this classical book. And I would find a book that was like, oh, this has, I will always love you by Whitney Houston and this and that. Okay, that's the one. And then you sit down and you play those as though you're trying to like sing through the instrument what these people are playing. And then the, the other element of it is I grew up in, in Pentecostal church. And basically if you grow up in Pentecostal church, there, there's no instrumentation for that. I mean, there's, there's the Hammond B3 organ, you know, and tambourine, but whatever else like, Oh, you play trombone? You know, get up here and come play then. Bring, bring, bring it with you. And I didn't know what I was doing. No one taught me any improvisation lessons or anything like that. It's just like, hey, the, you, you, the band would be playing or the preacher would be on the organ and someone else would be playing some drums and something else. And you just doodle around on your horn until you try to figure out where the pitch center is. And then you just go with the flow until, until it's over, which 
Sometimes it was 30 minutes and sometimes it was two and a half hours because that's the way Pentecostal church goes. Um, so you learn a lot about having fun with your instrument and being free and kind of having a singing approach to the, to the horn. Do you remember who were the members of your dream jam session or orchestra when you were growing up? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that's a good, interesting question. I don't know when I started playing, if I ever thought about right away the prospect of playing in an orchestra. You know, it was kind of like, yeah, there was Chicago Symphony there and I, I ended up eventually studying with one. But it was kind of like I just I like playing. Um, I like playing the clarinet like, you know, like there's some there's like this individual thing, too. Like I liked I just liked playing the instrument for me. And so my um, my dream band might have been the Chicago Youth Symphony because my brother was in it. Um, you know, so I always wanted to do what he was doing. So early on, before I got in that orchestra, I would hear him play um, with that group. And then I, I was actually, I heard him play with this group called the Chicago Teen Ensemble, which was kids that were all older than me by like four or five years, six years, that were my brother's age. And they were all from the South Side of Chicago, majority black kids. And they were like, that was probably my, the band that I wanted to be a member of the most that I got in basically after a year of playing <laughs> because they let me be you know, Damari's little brother in that group. So, but I don't know. I mean, I think I definitely had Michael Jackson dreams though when I was a kid about like meeting him. I mean, I had like, I never got the jacket. Did you ever get the jacket? Did any of you guys ever I get did, the jacket? I did, but I tried so hard to moonwalk through the kitchen in my socks. It was embarrassing. I wasn't allowed to get the jacket. I mean, the jacket was probably too expensive. But, you know, I wanted the glove. I had the glove. You know, um, maybe that was maybe that was it. You know, Michael Jackson was the thing when I was Michael Jordan and Michael Jackson. That was it. That's man we have we have even more parallels than we know because mm -hmm. i'm right i'm right on the same page with you I, I remember watching michael jordan get introduced on nbc in the finals like you had to be in front of the tv 10 minutes before the game because that was that was the thing you had to catch uh but i'm also similar in the sense that my dream group was probably playing in the all region band or the all state band or something like that because I didn't, I didn't fall in love with playing the instrument because I fell in love with orchestra. I didn't know anything about orchestra. My parents didn't know anything about orchestra. Um, by the time I was a junior in high school, I went to my first ever orchestra concert. That was kind of an aha moment for me. It's like, oh, there's this, there's this thing and there's this level of, of, of elegance and organization and all these other things that surround a major symphony orchestra. And that was appealing to me. And that was a, a moment when I decided that's something I want to do for a living. But I was already in love with music just because I was in love with the process of of creating a sound. And that's the thing that I think about from from the educational perspective is kids generally fall in love with music or people generally fall in love with a thing, not because they watch a thing, because they do it. You know, I mean, you might like Anthony and I grew up watching basketball and watching Michael Jordan, but we didn't fall in love with basketball because as five year olds, you sat in front of the TV and watched the basketball game. It's because most kids, or a lot of kids, grew up with a basketball hoop and a ball. And you just go out and play with your friends and you experiment with it and you see how difficult it is to put the ball in the basket. And you do that for a few hours and then you go and watch someone do it at a high level and you go like, oh, that thing I'm doing in the driveway, you can do it like that? Yeah. 
oh, now, you know, so that's why I think it's for, for young, young musicians, the, the early, the early engagement for them is not so much saying, hey, you need to come and watch it, sit in the audience and watch a concert. We need to put instruments in kids' hands and let them play and experience the joy of producing sound and feeling the vibration going through their body. It's one of the things we don't talk about as much as musicians, probably as we should, is the feeling that people have when they get to play an instrument. Mm -hmm. Just how powerful it is to hold an instrument and create a tone and what that, what that does for you. It's, it's a magical thing. So my love for music was far before I had any engagement with a major professional ensemble. It was just sitting in my room and falling in love with the sound. That's really beautiful. I wonder, Weston, if you would be able to uh, try to put into, you know, non-musician words and, and terms, that feeling that you're talking about. I don't play any instruments. I sing in the shower. So what would you say is something that maybe I've experienced that you can compare that feeling of playing an instrument to? I think you said it. It's like singing in the shower in a way, you know, because a lot of what we do, we do, we do in isolation. A lot of our, a lot of our work, the building of the craft. And when you're young, you know, you, you enjoy the process of making that sound. Singing in the shower is actually a perfect example because when you're, when you're 10 years old, you're not really good at this thing, you know, and I don't know, maybe you're the world's greatest singer. I'm definitely not. But when I sing in the shower, I'm not singing in the shower because it sounds great. It's because I just enjoy doing this. And there, there's a feeling about having vibration in your body and feeling like you have ownership of creation of a sound and that you can be creative and that you have freedom within your little space to, to make mistakes without someone criticizing you for it. And if it happens to work out really well, you can get excited about it and you can start to think about, oh, why did that work out well? Maybe I could do that again. Or maybe I could, now that I understand a couple of things, I could build a more complex picture. It's just, it's an enjoyable, it's just an enjoyable thing to, to take part in. You know, maybe, I don't know, Anthony, what do you think? I, I got one too. I got one. Okay. All right, Jose. This, this, is, this, is, this, this is good because it's like singing in the shower, like Weston said. But it's like the 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 version of it where you do it in, in sometimes in front of other people that we some of us love, and it's karaoke. All right, just imagine you with your friends and and people are like you know I don't know that much about music about classical music about I don't know that much about music I don't play, so I'm not really a musician. It's like yes you are, a lot of people are. Like he said, if you're singing in the shower or if you go to karaoke and you actually love certain music and you want to sing along with it. It's like, well, that's what I say about what we do now, is that we're band geeks that just grew up that are still just playing music, you know, because we, we, like, we, we enjoy it. So if there's something in your life that you just happen to like enjoy, you know, some, for some people, it is still playing basketball as adults, but on an amateur level. For some people, it's soccer or football, you know, and you can do that as an adult, but also it's just doing that on a professional scale. Like it's, it's the same thing. It's like we're kids, but they kept doing it and kept getting better better at it. So whatever that is for you, that's kind of like what we do with music, you know? And um, it's it's just all the same. It's just like we're, we weren't forced to grow up and do other things. <laughs> yeah, I like the two of you. I'm lucky enough that I get to do what I wanted to do since I was 10. And unfortunately not everyone gets to do that. So I, I totally hear you. Um, 
historically and unfortunately, the performing arts have mostly been welcoming and inviting and receptive to white men and women. So what would you say, or what do you want to say right now to young uh, kids of color who don't know that they also can get to do what, what the two of you do and what maybe orchestras that they love to get to do? Go ahead, Anthony. <laughs> um, yeah, so one, one important thing that I would say, especially to young people that are interested in music or that are doing music already, is that um, it's, it's about you, you know? It's really about you. Um, and it's about what you, what you find your love for, you know? So if music makes you feel great, then that, that could be a thing that, um, that you can't be stopped. You can't be stopped because things look a certain way on stage. Or for instance, you've gone to a symphony concert in your local symphony, your local orchestra, there's no one that looks like you on the stage. You know, I would say that as that's as that's trying to change in that industry, in the classical music industry, it really is just about about you and your love of what you're doing and how you can make a difference. And so if you want to do that, do it. You know, don't, never let anybody tell you you can't do it because there aren't like a lot of people like you doing it, because um, that was the case when I grew up. That was the case when Weston grew up. It still is the case now for a lot of students a lot of young people in the arts or in lots of different fields. And we can't let what the world looks like limit us um, from what we want to make it be, become, you know, in the future. And that's something that's super important is not to let um, the barriers to entry based on years and years of racism and et cetera, sexism, you name it, prevent you from going into the direction you want to go in life. I would tell young people, young aspiring musicians of color, change is coming, come be a part of it. You know, and a lot of change has occurred already. You know, if you rewind just a handful of years ago, there would not be an interview with people who look like me and Anthony speaking as leaders at the Juilliard School. We, we are living evidence of some degree of change doesn't mean there's not a lot more change that needs to happen. But the other thing is, you know, Anthony and I, we're first in some things, but we're not the first black people or brown people to be successful at this thing. There's a, there's a story that gets commonly told, and then there's a story that is. And I just remember back from my days in high school and studying music in college, what I learned about my history in classical music was that I didn't have one. Like, there weren't black people who did classical music. So I was told. But when you grow up and you learn a little bit more, you go, wait a second, if we actually go back and look at this, black and brown people have been making classical music at the highest level, basically since the inception of classical music. So I would tell young people, you don't have to be the first. We can help you learn your history. There are people who look like you who are doing this at a really high level right now. There are people who are doing this at a really high level 100 years ago and 200 years ago that look like you and they were doing it in America and they were doing it in Europe and they're, they're doing it all over the world. You know, so continuing or deciding that you want to be a part of this tradition, it's it's your tradition as much as it is anybody else's. So you don't have to feel like there's an element of imposter syndrome or that you're breaking the mold or something. This this is for you, you know, and it's it's becoming more and more that way every day. And it's not so much that we're we're new to this space. 
people are just becoming more socialized to the fact that, that we're here and we do this as well as anybody else. Yeah, I mean, I would also, I would say another thing they can rely on for sure is the gift of music is not selectively given to people of a certain race. The gift, gift of having musical talent has been given to black and brown people for all of eternity, frankly. Um, whether or not a certain particular like little squared off like wing or genre or whatever isolated, you know, for certain types of people or certain uh, socioeconomic, you know, levels of people or races, that's all made up human stuff, human made up stuff. But the gift of music, the gift, gift of musical talent, if we want to think of that as being given to one person or another, which is arguable, debatable, that has been given to um, people of color for, for all of eternity in so many different arenas. And you just you don't have to look very far to understand that. I can't say it any better than that. So what's the next question? <laughs> Amen. Okay, so so the two of us are like really fun teachers. So I'm sorry that I have to ask this, but who would you want to see play you in a biopic about about you? Man, I you're gonna have to edit this out. Um, <laughs> you know, my my knee jerk reaction was Will Smith, but I don't think I can say that anymore. Um, <laughs> Oh, Lord. <laughs> so, then, you're probably going to put this on the podcast. And he's going to like come to my apartment and slap me. But um, <laughs> he would do a good job, though. Nobody ever said he wasn't a great actor. That is true. That is true. <laughs> Anthony, who would you pick? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, shoot. That's a tough one. Um. You know, I'm going to go with, see, I'm going to go with like, yeah, like identifying like who are, you know is on the screen. Who's that dude that was in, um, oh, shoot. <laughs> I can't even remember his name. I feel um, like Tay Diggs would do you well. Oh, yeah. Tay, well, Tay, I, get, I could get Tay Diggs, you know. <laughs> but you know who's doing serious acting now? Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart is doing some serious acting. And he could, he could do me. We're about the same height, you know. Yeah, and we have we have by the way we have like the same birthday or like very close to it, yeah. Matt has a very exciting thirtieth birthday celebration coming up on May fourteenth. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and invite our viewers and our listeners to attend? Sure, I, I can I can take that one. On May fourteenth, the music advancement program chorus, which is one of the beautiful elements of our program, every student in MAP participates in chorus. Uh, we'll be joining forces with J415, which is the historical performance department of, of Juilliard, so they're college students. And they're going to be putting on a performance of a newly commissioned work that's called Map A New World uh, at the Cathedral Church of St. John the Divine on May 14th. And this is a really cool piece that we, we commissioned Francisco Nunez. Uh, to write to write the music for and Monique Truong to to create the libretto, but what I think is really neat about this piece is that the inspiration for this piece is sourced from the MAP students. So Francisco and Monique spend some time during the first semester of this school year coming to a class that we have every Saturday morning at eight thirty called MAP Rally, and that's that's a class that 
covers a broad span of things for our students, whether that's how to be good colleagues, how to organize your practice schedule, understanding other, any number of things that don't technically fall into our curriculum. But Monique and Francisco came to that class a handful of times to talk to the students about their lived experience, whether that's their commute to school, how they deal with their classes, what they enjoy about making music, what they enjoy about their relationships or don't enjoy about their relationships or how difficult their theory exam was, you name it, all these different things. And then they, they aggregated all that information and from that they created a multi-movement work that has this libretto and this great music that's, that's inspired by our students. So our students in Music Advance Program are going to have an opportunity to have this really elevated musical experience. They're working with college students who are obviously playing at an extraordinarily high level. So they're going to get to engage with artistic excellence in a really beautiful space. They're going to get to be able to perform a piece where they feel like they were part of the process. They, they had something to say about what they're performing. And it's going to be composed by, composed and written by people of color. You know, people who who have some some relationship to to their background as well. So we're we're super excited about the project. I hope that anyone and everyone who's available to come will come. Yeah, and um, and the title map, you know, um, the map program itself has a, this global feel, like this kind of international, beautifully diverse feel within it, with feel within it. And it's like not only just a play on words, the title of it, but it's also um, letting our community know that, you know, we are internationally beautiful. You know, this this world we we live in is beautiful because of our differences. You know, Francisco has a different background than I do. Uh, you have a different background than Weston does, you know, but that doesn't mean we can't come together as one world in today's community as a musical force. And some of that background is, is um, Francisco weaves through this connection in this, in this particular work, because we're talking about what is the Baroque era, you know, have to do with modern day, you know, New York, you know, what does it have to do with our different backgrounds? What is, what is, um, you know, how are, you know, my African an ancestry, how does that relate? to um, you know, people from the, the Dominican Republic, how we're all interconnected, first of all, because we're all humans, right? So if we lived in different times and there were different values and all these different things, what this performance does and what this work does is it brings us together here to make music, which is the, probably the most beautiful thing we can do. So it's a really gonna be a really special day for our program. Um, and I think people are gonna love the, the music. Really that sounds gorgeous. That sounds really beautiful. Congratulations on that. It's like, it's going to be so exciting probably, or not probably, I'm sure it's going to be very exciting for them to be playing music that's about themselves. It's, it's really beautiful. Congratulations on that. And Anthony and Weston, thank you. And break a leg on the 14th. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Hey, it's Leslie Udom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.